Come here, Rosa. Come here. Kneel to our lady and swear to me you study civics. No, I will not. Because you don't study no civics tonight. Don't study no civics. Why do you talk like you just came moving this? This isn't Cecily, mother. You are not a baroness. You do sewing. Daddy? Daddy hold bananas. You hold bananas and something under the banana. And welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we finished out the 1955 nominees, so we will let you know if the right film won for this year at the end of the episode. But we watched The Rose Tattoo, based on a lesser-known Tennessee Williams play, and like many of the lesser Tennessee Williams plays, or lesser-known, there's a reason. (laughs) Yeah. This has big, like, I don't know, one of the podcasts that I have said several times, I only listen to two film podcasts besides us, just because there's only so much time in a week, and I have to watch these bad movies that for some reason the Academy thinks are great. (laughs) Are How Did This Get Made, which is Jason Manzukis and June Diane Raphael and Paul Shear watching largely very bad movies, and Blank Check, which is the actor Griffin Newman and the critic David Sims watching through director's filmographies. That name is based around the idea that you can have such a huge success in Hollywood that you are given a blank check to make whatever crazy passion project you want. And that those end up often being at least interestingly bad. And this movie feels like a real blank check for Tennessee Williams in a lot of weird ways. And it's a bounce. It is not a successful blank check of a thing. But it feels like he has all these freedoms that he feels like he can take advantage of. Because he really throws weight around on the casting of this. This has so many locations for a thing based on a play. It feels like he really rewrote this for the freedom of the camera can go anywhere and didn't really stop to think of, like, why you would take the camera there. It can, but should it? (laughs) It has almost every stage to screen adaptation mistake that I can think of. And it feels like it's because nobody wanted to tell him no after Streetcar, you know? Yeah... They really should have. <laughs> oh, this, this. They, yeah. So it's not like the worst movie I've ever seen by any stretch of the imagination, but it's got real why bother energy. It's a two hour soap opera episode insofar as it is totally ludicrous. All of the stakes make no sense. Frankly, none of the action makes any sense. The yeah, I don't. I do not fucking understand anything in this movie unless I look at it through the lens of like Riverdale. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, among other things, there's so much table setting in this that you're 40 minutes in before this movie settles down enough for you to understand what this movie is about, like who our central character is, whose emotional journey we're following. Right, and even once you settle into it. Then there's not enough time left, and everybody is... Burt Lancaster is so terrible in this movie. 
He's he's so terrible. He's so terrible. And you know what I thought at a certain point in his just extremely goofy first big scene where he's mostly in a like the undershirt is that he's trying to channel Jimmy Stewart's like awkward charm. And I'm like, sir, I know Jimmy Stewart and you are no Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Again, I swear I'm going to not talk about Blank Check after this in this episode, but they're doing Sam Raimi right now. And his performance is like Bruce Campbell in the Evil Dead movies. Like, it is so broad that it's disturbing. Like, the, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I, I was like, is he supposed to be a little bit uh, underdeveloped? Not as a character, but like, does he have a developmental disability? Nope. That's just the way that he's playing this. Okay. Yeah, I think he's, like, supposed to be like that because he is so head over heels for Serafina, for our lead, that he just is nervous and self-conscious and doing all these weird, ha yeah, I'm very excited, I'm very happy to be here near you, ha ha ha, things. And does absolutely batshit things on the basis of hanging out one day. Yeah. Like, getting a tattoo. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I guess we should talk about the plot of this movie because it is fucking insane. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh. So, it starts with this blonde lady goes into the home of a seamstress who is a Sicilian immigrant and wants a shirt made in one day, a silk shirt made for her lover for their anniversary, which is the next day. And she just got a tattoo of a rose on her chest that matches the tattoo of a rose that her lover has on his chest, which... The seamstress's husband also has a tattoo of a rose on his chest. So here's the thing I'm confused about, because this movie lasts 117 minutes and 37 years. (laughs) So how does Serafina, our lead, not put together that this woman is talking about her husband? Does she never... I don't know. Okay. (laughs) I mean, she... I guess she does eventually because she basically gets told. Anyway, the very next day, her husband drops dead in the morning. <laughs> and the girlfriend tries to come to the house. And the ladies of the neighborhood are like, you can't go in there. She's like, I have to see the body. But Serafina, who is the seamstress, had him cremated, which was against the Catholic Church's law which becomes not really an issue later but is mentioned right this whole section has stuff where you're like oh that's gonna come back later and it always does but there's no way of telling whether it comes back later as like a big deal or not it's callback level it's not oh you did this thing that was against the church's law which should be like a pretty big deal if you're gonna bring it up and then it's just literally like, oh, well, the priest goes, well, that's why you're unhappy. Yeah. But she doesn't get excommunicated. Like, there's no real stakes about it. 
And like, it doesn't even last through the scene. No. Like by the end of that scene, the priest has kind of given up on that. It's just like there so the priest can say a shitty thing to her later. That doesn't really amount to anything. Yeah. And speaking of not really amounting to anything, after the funeral, we jump cut to three years later, where we follow for a really long time Seraphina's daughter, Estelle. No, Rosa. Rosa. Because her name is Rosa de la Rosa, and her father was Rosario de la Rosa. And this is a fucking rose tattoo, and everything is about roses. And I'm like... Man, this is middle school level (laughs) choices in writing. (laughs) Yeah. Forgive me. Yeah. Estelle is the name of the woman who was having an affair with Serafina's husband. And I don't, I honestly don't know why they named that character. (laughs) Like she exists for nothing but to be like this avatar of like, yeah, like, she doesn't even ever really come back. She she comes back just long enough to go, like, I, it was me. I did have an affair with your husband, and I'm proud of it. Here's the rose tattoo that proves it. And you're like, I don't know how that proves it, but I guess it's the name of the fucking movie, so let's get out of here. Whatever, yeah. Anyway, Rosa <laughs> can't stand her mother anymore because she's been a shut-in since her father died three years previous. And, like, doesn't want to let Rosa out of the house to meet boys and, like... Live. (laughs) Live a life. And you're like, oh, the movie is about Rosa now. No, you're wrong. We just spend 20 minutes seeing Rosa meet a, like, nice Navy man and her teacher come by to tell Serafina she sucks. Yeah. Then that fucking just goes away until the last 10 minutes of the movie. I think we cut away once to Rosa and this dipshit Navy man on a boat just going like, ah, love. And that's fucking it for them for an hour. Because Serafina is now like slowly piecing together (laughs) that her husband cheated on her. And she does that because a woman directly tells her to her face, your husband was cheating on you, and I know the name of the woman who did it. And she has a rose tattoo on her chest, just like your husband did. And then it takes Serafina a good 30 minutes to really get confirmation from that. Part of that is going to church and asking her priest if her husband confessed that he had an affair. And the priest is like, you know that I can't tell you that. Somehow this is a result of you getting your husband cremated instead of buried for whatever reason. (laughs) And then Burt Lancaster pulls her off of the priest after she, like, basically attacks the priest. (laughs) And in her anger and fury, she rips Burt Lancaster's shirt. Yeah. And he is playing a truck driver named Alvaro who was friends-ish, or, like, knew her husband, kind of. And also I'm supposed to believe that Burt Lancaster is Sicilian. (laughs) It's insane. Because so much of Rose's plotline is Serafina going, you should never fall in love with anyone who isn't a Sicilian. And you'd have to be a like absolute jerk to do it. And then everyone treats her like she's being a hypocrite when she gets together with Alvaro. And Burt Lancaster looks 
negative 30% Sicilian. <laughs> so, like... Yes. <laughs> but he is. But he says that he is. It's written into the script, so I guess we have to buy it. Yeah. Um, But also, like, why is, I guess, what I'm yeah. getting at. Anyway, they have a meet-cute, then, I guess, of, like, them talking to each other and her mentioning the rose tattoo on her husband's chest. And then he goes away. In like the one really Tennessee Williams moment of this play, where she talks about how the night that she realized that she was pregnant with her second child and she had a miscarriage when her husband died, but that she felt this burning in her chest and she looks at the mirror and she could see the tattoo that her husband had on her chest. And that was how she knew that she was pregnant. And I'm like, okay, now we're getting into, like, weird Tennessee Williams territory. Okay, nope. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That's the only thing. So Alvaro goes and decides that it's a great idea to get the same tattoo her dead husband has on impulse to show her. Um, And we learn about now that Tennessee Williams has absolutely no idea how tattoos work. Boy, he doesn't. (laughs) Uh, Because... Alvaro manages to get this tattoo completely clean in the space of about three hours, it would seem. (laughs) Max 24. Yeah. Like, it's either the next day or, like, later that evening. I'm not really sure. Either way, even if that made any sense in the way that getting a tattoo works, there are so many levels on which this behavior from Alvaro makes zero fucking sense except as a way for Serafina to be disgusted by him and, like, push him away. Which, fair, if I met a dude the day before and he got a tattoo for me, I would be like, oh, no fucking way, man. Yeah, tattoo, period. (laughs) Tattoo identical to my dead husband's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a tattoo identical to my dead husband, maybe, like, I'm calling for an emergency restraining order. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is some fucked up shit. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, then she makes Alvaro driver to where, actually, Estelle, the woman that was having an affair with Serafina's husband, works at this club. And Serafina now finds out for sure that this was happening in, I think, kind of her only truly great performance moment of the film. Comes home and loses her goddamn mind (laughs) and breaks the urn with Rosario's ashes in it and is like, you know what? Fuck it. Alvaro, come back in. And then what happens? (laughs) Like this, he ends up spending the night, but like sleeping Or no, they have to do the whole very big thing where he pretends to leave. Right, because the whole neighborhood... Because all the neighbors are busybodies. Which it seems like is inconsistently done just so they can do this stuff in Act 3. Because it doesn't really match up with how the neighborhood acts in Act 1. But whatever. Then the daughter comes back after... Like, Alvaro is super drunk. And Serafina hates that. And goes, like, sleep it off out here. I'm going to my bedroom. Then Rosa comes in, the daughter who, honestly, I had basically forgotten about. 
and tries to fall asleep on the sofa because she doesn't realize Alvaro is there. And he's still drunk, so he, like, tries to make out with the daughter. And then is immediately like, oh, shit, I thought you were your mom. And Serafina throws him out. And then she allows Rosa to go off with her Navy boyfriend because she's more understanding about people's moral failings, I guess? And as a result, brings Alvaro, who has been just sitting up on top of the mast of a boat nearby their house, begging for forgiveness publicly... He, he she invites him back down or is just shouting that he's a bird i mean he he just seems absolutely like guileless and shouting anyway they then go inside <laughs> and i guess they're going to have sex cuz they play player piano music real loud and like are like i don't care what the neighbors say or whatever and the end of i guess film um arguably film yes uh, yeah that is uh that is the plot um oh we also forgot the weird moment where seraphina gets mad at jack the navy boyfriend and asks him if he's catholic and then she's like you don't look catholic and i'm like i don't know what that means but if she means he doesn't look italian that's true also neither does Bert lancaster but she makes him, like, get on his knees in front of a statue of the Virgin Mary and swear that he will guard Rosa's innocence. <laughs> and boy, there's nothing weird and creepy about that at all. I gotta say, Serafina is creepy as hell. Yeah. I think that's kind of the point, and I think that a lot of Tennessee Williams' oeuvre is about how women of a certain age become, like, basically weird, mystical witches. <laughs> but what the fuck? In a weird way, this play kind of reads like an apology for that, but in this weird way where, like, he doesn't understand what he's done wrong, because he's like, a lot of my plays do seem to revolve around middle-aged women who are no longer, like you know, of age to be marriageable, just becoming weird crones with magic powers and holds on their children that never let them do anything and that die alone and unloved. (laughs) And I'm right about all of that except for alone and unloved. So in the back half of this one, she goes on a whirlwind romance with a wacky guy who gets too drunk and gets wacky tattoos and stuff. And it's like a 50s sitcom. (laughs) And you're like, what the, (laughs) what is that? It does feel that way, though. Like, oh, man, everyone keeps criticizing me for these totally fucked up versions of my mother that I keep writing into plays. Which, like, I don't know if they were actually that, but one gets the feeling. So, yeah, yeah. Like, look, she has a she has a boyfriend now. And I'm like, yeah, but she's still an old woman who has become a superstitious weird mythical monster and yeah you spend so much time with rosa in this like glass menagerie-esque no-win scenario of her shut-in insane mother who won't let her go out into the world 
that you're like, oh, I guess what that's what this movie is gonna be. Right. And then it just stops being that. Yeah, that's like the first half hour of this movie. You're like, okay, so this is just like the not as good version of Glass Menagerie that he wrote. Oh no, it's it's not. It's like what if Glass Menagerie, but then there's a twist. And the twist is it's a wacky romantic comedy for the mom. <laughs> Right, except I, Tennessee Williams, honey, you can't write a wacky romantic comedy. No. You're trying, but it makes no damn sense. I don't think, Bert, I think Burke Lancaster is giving a bad performance, but I also don't think that Tennessee Williams understands what a joke is. Because, oh, no, I don't think so either. Because every attempt at one in this movie is like you explained the concept of a joke to an alien and then made one right one. <laughs> well, they all feel like the jokes in all of his other plays, which are supposed to be tragically bad. Like, some awkward character is like, oh, well, let me make a joke. And then they do. And then, like, the person on stage with them laughs awkwardly and the entire audience is like, oh, my God, I'm dying inside for them. <laughs> and, like... I guess he just thought those were funny. Because <laughs> that's all that this is. Yeah. Burt Lancaster is, I guess, what if Stanley Kowalski was still, like, kind of a big meathead and hot, quote-unquote. And I'll give it to Burt Lancaster. Like, he's got, you know, big muscles or whatever. It's not my style, but it's a lot of people's style. And in the 50s, it was even more people's style. Yeah. But it's like, what if Stanley Kowalski was not a violent and angry person, but was also still not terribly smart? And you're like, okay. Yeah. So not very interesting. Yeah. Like, it'd be... Burt Lancaster, obviously, like you say, has muscles, a very attractive man, objectively, but that is not his energy. Like, this part is a himbo, right? Like, that's what we have here. Right, yeah. And that is not the energy Burt Lancaster brings to this. He's trying to bring that aw shucksness of, like, yeah, I'm, oh boy, what are you gonna do? But haha, I'm a, I'm like a fun guy having a fun time. And it's like, no, you're just an idiot. You're just a charming, like, you're. what's charming about you is you're a good-looking idiot. Yeah, like, you've got thick hair. That's your thing, dude. Yeah. And, like, I don't know if I want to give Tennessee Williams the credit to say that's even what he intended here, but if you're going to make that part work, that's what you have to do. Because just none of his motivations make any goddamn sense, unless it's just, like, I'm just a dipshit and I think this woman's hot. And his energy is so, it's so frenetic. Yeah. And I'm like, how is anybody falling in love with this guy? Because, like, I'm exhausted watching him. And I'm thinking, like, if this dude were around me, I would probably be like, you need to go because you're freaking me the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not what he's saying, it's the way that he says it. And he can't sit still, and he's constantly, like, standing up and kind of leaning over her, and it's very, very uncomfortable. I will say that Anna Magnani, I think is her name, who plays Serafina, I think she's probably a good actor. She's just stuck in a not-very-good movie. (laughs) Yeah, I think there is a version of this movie... 
where she is not the only actor going for realism. Yes. <laughs> Wherein she is a good actress. But in this one, it's just yet another way that you can't get a grip on what this movie is, is that she is tonally off in her own fucking universe versus literally everyone else in the film. When it's just her, literally just her, I think like, oh, she's good. But that's, we're talking literally has no one else to play off of in the scene. Because when the daughter's there, then you're like, the daughter plays as too sympathetic. And then we've discussed at length that Burt Lancaster is like in this weird, extremely broad comic version of the film. Everybody else is in a melodrama. And she is in this grounded, like, woman who cannot contain her grief and has no outlet for it. <laughs> like, it's a Meryl Streep-esque performance in a movie where Burt Lancaster does a little fucking jig with her for a minute and a half. Like, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and apparently Tennessee Williams specifically wrote this play for her. And uh, I think that that shows... Because I think that she is inhabiting this character and showing a level of grief and the complexities and the contradictions of what it is to be grieving and to grieve for this amount of time, especially with somebody who betrayed you. I think that there is an interesting performance happening in a movie that's not exploring the things that are being played. Because we don't really go into that. Yeah. Except for the one scene where she comes and destroys the ashes, which, as you rightly said, is the best part of this movie. Or at least, I don't know if it's like the best in terms of, I really enjoyed this, but it is definitely the finest acting in this film. It's the finest acting, and it's also the moment where you go like, oh, this is what is interesting about this story. This woman has physicalized her grief and the way that she has put her dead husband on a pedestal. And that that pedestal is like, this is what the priest is trying to say about the cremation, but ends up just being kind of a shitty priest. Yes. Is like, by cremating him and keeping him in your home, you haven't released the grief. That by burying him, you're literally, you're burying a person. Right. It means you're saying goodbye to this person. And if he's in the urn forever, you will never be able to let go of who he was. And that, like, this moment of discovering who he really was and the hard break with that versus who she had created in her mind for her dead husband, who she decided he was, was causing her all of this pain and destroying her life and her relationship with her daughter. And it finally comes crashing down and she makes the choice and she destroys the urn. And you're like, oh, that's what this movie is about. Yep. That's maybe five minutes of this movie <laughs> where, we're, <laughs> where we're really looking at that. Which is an interesting story. Yeah. And this idea also of like, she has gone against the law of the church because she couldn't she didn't want to let his physical form go, even if it is in, you know, ashes in an urn. And that possessiveness makes the affair so much more traumatic in that context of like, I didn't actually possess him, but in death I will. Yeah. <laughs> There's something really interesting to explore there, but it doesn't get explored, which is unfortunate because I do think that, that, uh, Anna Mondiani could could do it 
we see her do it. We see her bring something to it that's not even in the text. And unfortunately makes the rest of the movie fucking infuriating. Because it's like, why are we dealing with this trivial shit? Yeah, for sure. I want to see the Meryl Streep of it. Yeah. (laughs) I also don't think it helps that Tennessee Williams ain't very good at writing Italian immigrant dialogue. Like, I think she's performing it pretty well. She is an Italian immigrant, so she has that going for her. But yeah, I definitely had to look that up very early in this movie because I was like, what sort of fucking pizza spaghetti bullshit accent is this? Oh, she's actually Italian. It's just the dialogue. It's that the dialogue has a just big pizza spaghetti. It's a me Mario vibe. <laughs> She is doing her best with it, and when there's some emotional truth to it, it's there, but when she's just, like, haranguing Italian mother, it's stereotype, stereotype, Catholic, Catholic, stereotype. It's no good. Which is wild, because Tennessee Williams loved her as an actor. So you not only knew an Italian immigrant, she was the woman on whom you were basing this play. Could you, like... I don't know, sit with her and listen to her talk. Yeah, let her do a dialogue pass or something. Like Right, just like, oh, this is not how we would say this. Yeah. And I get it, like Tennessee Williams definitely wrote non-realistic dialogue, but if that's what you're gonna do, you don't need to try to make it sound Italianistic. I'm not even gonna say Italianate, because it's it's so far removed. <laughs> We're now on the third simulacrum. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, yeah, don't really have anything else to say about this movie, so I guess we should probably rate it. Yeah. Uh, two or a three? Uh, yeah. I See, I, I was like four, but I don't know. I think I'm just, I'm doing that thing where I'm like, but it's Tennessee Williams, but also like Tennessee Williams has written a lot of plays that were not amazing. Yeah, three, four... I'll say three, because I do think that, again, Adam Anyani is doing a good job, but... Yeah, I mean, like... And I think Ben Cooper as Jack is actually doing a... (laughs) He's really kind of nice and charming, and I would have liked to have seen more of him, frankly. I will agree with that. I actually think I would have vastly preferred, even though Adam Anyani is very clearly the best actor in this movie by a country mile. I think I would have much rather seen a movie about the daughter and Jack where she only briefly appeared (laughs) after the first like 30 minutes. Yeah. Though I do find that Marissa Pavan was really annoying. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's kind of a toss up there. Like, oh, I'm going to have to deal with more of her. Yeah, I'll go with a three. But sort of my feeling is she's giving a really good performance in the wrong movie. And does that still count as a really good performance? She's giving a really good performance that is right for the character, but wrong for what the character is given. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm fine with a three, and I absolutely think she's the best part of the movie. Don't watch this movie. Yeah, do not watch this movie. (laughs) Like, at all. (laughs) So, yeah. This year, the nominees this year were Marty, which won. Yep. Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Yep. Mr. Roberts, Picnic, and The Rose Tattoo. It was not a great year. (laughs) No, there's a reason I'd never heard of any of these movies. And it's because 
with the exception of Portions of Marty and Portions of Picnic. They're all bad. <laughs> oh, I would say Portions of Mr. Roberts. Yeah, that's fair. More even than Portions of Marty. I enjoyed Mr. Roberts more than I did Marty. I guess me too. I've forgotten everything about Mr. Roberts already. <laughs> I mean, William Powell and Henry Fonda were really lovely in it. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I like, I'm reminding myself, and there's parts of it that I like. And like, I do think it's probably my number two pick. You're right. I probably like it better than Marty. But I just also think it's like such a forgettable movie. There's nothing really outstanding about it. But that's also true of Picnic. I think there's some stuff in Picnic I quite like. I really like William Holden in it. Yeah, I think Picnic is far and away the best movie of this year. Yeah. And we gave it like a seven. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think a movie where an hour in I cautiously went, do I like this movie? is head and shoulders above the rest of the year. (laughs) Where by an hour in, I could definitively say, not really, or God, no. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So what's wild to me is 1955 was not necessarily a bad year in film. East of Eden came out in this year and actually won the Golden Globe for drama. Wild. The seven-year itch came out in this year not nominated i have no idea if oklahoma the musical is good and it is definitely not my thing but you know the 50s loved a prairie musical yeah (laughs) night of the hunter came out in this year we i was going to say nikki and i actually just watched night of the hunter because it was going off of amazon or whatever service it was on Night of the Hunter is our occasional acting nemesis of... Charles Lawton. uh, God, Charles Lawton. In the first and only film he ever directs, in which he tries to invent Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events 40 Years Too Early, and accidentally creates David Lynch instead by going way too dark with it. Yeah. It's a really good movie. It's amazing. I definitely could see how in 1955, everybody was like, what the fuck is this? If the things that they nominated for Best Picture were these five movies. Honestly, I understand someone in 2022 watching that movie and going, what the fuck is this? Okay, that's that's fair. Large portions (laughs) of that movie are, what the fuck is this? But when it works, it really works. And when it accidentally works, like the whole sequence where the two kids go down the river and everything becomes increasingly symbolic for budget reasons, it's like weirdly transcendent. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to our Night of the Hunter fan cast that the 55 awards have become. Rebel Without a Cause came out in this year. Jesus. Which is a really good movie. Like, unquestionably a good movie. To Catch a Thief came out in this year. Yeah. 55 was not a shitty year for movies. It was a terrible year for Best Picture nominees. And it's... I, I truly do not understand what... The fuck, really? I mean, that's like, why? It's Guys and Dolls with Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra comes out this year. Yeah. Like, I, just, 
Which I haven't seen, but come on, it has to be at least entertaining. Uh, you know, I should probably re-watch it because we tried to go through it and I was like, you know, Sinatra's not that great in it. And my mom was like, did you get to Brando? Because Brando is weirdly transcendent in it. And I was like, that makes sense because apparently Marlon Brando's good in fucking everything, <laughs> which I know I'm not the first person to realize that. But I didn't realize that like everything yeah, even yeah, things that, where you're... that everything means everything. <laughs> that everything means he's going to show up in a movie musical with Frank Sinatra and be better than Frank Sinatra. Obnoxious, <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah, I think what's really interesting, actually, about Brando, not to get on a complete fucking tangent about an actor who's not even in a movie that is nominated this year, but these nominations sucked so. Uh, what's interesting about Brando is that from the very beginning of his career, he does not get pigeonholed. Yeah. That he did fucking Shakespeare in the same year or maybe one year after he did Streetcar, that a year after that he is doing a movie musical and he did On the Waterfront the year before. Like, he... This didn't happen in Hollywood, (laughs) at least not at this time. Like, you might, after, you know, 12 films you've been on contract for where you play essentially the same type, get the chance to do something that is out of character, like William Holden got to do for Picnic, and prove that you have a different side. And I feel like, actually, even though we don't have the same, like, studio contract system that we uh, had in the 50s now... You still have that where it's like, oh, my God, look, this person who is known as being funny is doing a dramatic role. And it's like the biggest fucking deal. Uh, so I think it, Brando's career is really interesting for that reason, that he just like somehow escaped that. Yeah, I think that you're totally right to say like his thing is weirdly so broad because it's just like finding the emotion emotional truth in something that he's allowed <laughs> But Hollywood got that? (laughs) Yeah. That he, like, is allowed to do almost anything instead of going, like, yeah, you're the, you're the, you're this kind of hot guy. Right. You're the meathead. That's you. Like, you're not very smart, but you're cute. Or not cute, but, like, you're hot with a little bit of potential violence. Yeah. And, yeah, I think it's actually really impressive that he gets to do that i mean again there are a lot of issues with brando the human being but as an actor can't really fault the guy he's really good uh yeah i think the winner for this year should have been picnic of the nominees for sure i think marty is third for me i Uh, yeah i i think that's fair like i don't honestly it's like it's basically Picnic is the only one of these I'm going to remember even parts of once we're like to the 60s. If you ask me about anything from this year besides Picnic, I'm going to be like, that's the one with the guy. Uh, fuck. Uh, that, that, the, like, he's just a sad sack and he meets a teacher, I guess. Oh, I'm going to remember Love is a Many Splendored Thing for the yellow face. Oh, I will remember that it is a movie with yellow face for sure. But if you will, if you ask me right now to say what the plot of Love is a Mini Splendored Thing is, I'd be like, I don't know who gives a shit. It's like this shitty yellow faced romance movie. Like, yeah, 
I don't. I mean, I think you nailed it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so 55. Not a great year for Academy Award nominees. Pretty decent year for film. Yeah. Outside of these nominees. Um, so, yeah, speaking of Yellowface, next week we start the 1956 nominees with The King and I. A movie I know about. Yeah, I mean, I know I know a decent amount about it. I know that Yul Brenner, who was, you know, a Russian guy, plays the King of Siam. Yeah. So there's that. Anyway, also Deborah Kerr is in it. Yeah, I, I'm i not really going to stand up and defend it. I don't think I've seen it since I was like seven or eight. I've never seen it. It is. Yeah, it it is. That's all. <laughs> I've never seen it and I've never seen it on stage either. So it's going to be a, a whole, it will be a whole new world for me. All right. <sighs> I'm not excited about it. So yeah, tune in next week to see what we think of that. And uh, until then... When they were auditioning Robert Mitchum for Night of the Hunter, Charles Lawton actually went and was like, let me describe the character to you. He's a diabolical shit. And Mitchum's immediate response was to raise his hand and go, present, which I just, I love that. I love that better than, that's a more entertaining story than watching this entire movie. It is, actually. I think I'm going to just go watch Night of the Hunter now. (laughs) It's great. Everyone, you should do that too. (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. You got to tell me. Tell me, Father. Please, Serafina, let go of me. Not till you tell me this question, this answer. I want it. I want it. Let go of me. Let go of me. Just tell me I let go. Let go of me. Don't tell I never let go. I go. I go. I never let go. I never let go. Father, I tell you. Mr. Mangiacavallo, please. Help me calm this one night. I'll speak to her later when she's more calm. 